Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do. Join me in turning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter number 1. 1 Peter, chapter number 1. We'll begin a new year together in a new series of sermons from the letter that is 1 Peter, one that I have been looking forward to and I trust will be of help and encouragement to you in knowing more the God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ. In short, 1 Peter is a handbook on how to live in a land that is not your home. In case you've missed this along the way, this land is not our home. In light of that observation, we are left to reckon with the question of how we now live in a world we can less and less identify with. We have become citizens of a kingdom that is yet to come, a kingdom ruled by the everlasting King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Given his lordship over our life and this disjointed, disconnecting, disconnected feeling we have toward the world around us, what are we now to do? First Peter helps us to answer those questions. If you've found your way to First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 1, I would invite you to join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. First Peter chapter 1 verse number 1, here's what God's word says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you've had to struggle in various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love him, though you've not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels desire to look into these things. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. One of, one of the first thoughts that I had this morning when waking up was, man, I wish I'd have made two sermons out of this one. So we'll get two messages into one preaching time, and I'll try to do that in a timely manner if it's at all possible. I want us to address verses 1 and 2 in sort of a, a, a summary fashion, and then we'll dive into the, to the text of verses 3 and following. What Peter says in verses 1 and 2 I think is really important to our understanding or appreciating what Peter has to say here in the book. Verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The temporary residents. And there are all sorts of translations of that little phrase there, temporary residents dispersed. Some of your translations will read pilgrims, some will read sojourners, some will read strangers of, of the diaspora or the dis dispersion and, and may even translate dispersion with a capital D as a proper noun to speak of a certain event that dispersed Jewish people throughout the ancient uh, area of Asia Minor, those pilgrims of dispersion or temporary residents in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's this sort of circuit route. And Peter tells us in the conclusion of 1 Peter that he's written this letter and he's assigned to Silvanus to take this letter to the local churches of these regions and to read it aloud. This is a sermon. 1 Peter is a sermon, and the way Peter is going to preach in multiple places, in multiple sermons, is to send the sermon by Silvanus, and he's going to stand and read this manuscript that Peter has prepared under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. That little phrase, temporary residence, is critical to us. There are two points of reference for Peter's audience in understanding what it means to be a temporary residence. One is Roman. One is a Roman point of reference. And here's what I mean by that. Each of these areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, represent Roman provinces. It's the same general area that John writes to in the book of Revelation, those seven churches addressed in Revelation 1 through 3. Only in that text, John is addressing the more urban areas of Asia Minor, whereas 1 Peter, Peter is addressing the more rural areas. So we might identify to the audience of 1 Peter in that way. These are not urbanites, but these are rural people scattered across the Roman provinces that are mentioned here. In the broadest of terms, there are essentially two classes of people in Asia Minor. Two classes of people, in fact, in the Roman Empire. There are Roman citizens, which comes with certain rights, privileges, and protections. You might remember in the Apostle Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, there were a few times when he appealed to his Roman citizenship and the protections it afforded him. Once he's beaten and he's thrown into prison, and then he reveals to his captors, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And they all sort of go into a panic. Because although you might have treated the ordinary person the way they treated the Apostle Paul, there were certain protections in place for anyone named a Roman citizen that they must undergo a trial before any such treatment might come to pass. They all began to panic and to scurry around trying to address the wrong they now understand themselves to have done the Apostle Paul. There are Roman citizens who enjoy the protections and the privileges of citizenship. And then there are mere Roman subjects, temporary residents, passers through, who didn't enjoy all of the benefits of citizenship, but they were to share in the various obligations and responsibilities that came with abiding within the context of the Roman Empire. They did not enjoy the protections, the provisions that Roman citizens enjoyed, and because of that, they often suffered the oppression of those who enjoyed such protections. So this, the, the, the church in Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Pontus, they had a specific Roman framework for understanding what it meant to be a temporary resident. 
As temporary residents, we undergo a certain degree of mistreatment because we cannot, in the fullest sense, identify with this land. It has become our expectation that we will be treated poorly. If we draw that some contemporary application, we might note that although we have legal or official citizenship with a land in this world, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And because there ought to be a sense in which we are increasingly disconnected from our citizenship here as we grow more and more connected to our citizenship in a kingdom that is to come, we might just suffer the same fate as those temporary residents in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's a second point of reference for Peter's audience. Not only would they have understood what it meant to be a temporary resident in a Roman context, they would have also understood what it meant to be a temporary resident in a Jewish context. The Old Testament tells the story of Israel's continued unfaithfulness. And eventually, in an act of judgment, God sends Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army to carry Israel away captive. And for 70 years, Israel lives in exile in their Babylonian captivity, in a land that was not their own, wrestling with real questions, with substantive issues, such as how we're now to live in a land that does not belong to us. Apart from the promised land, how are we to carry ourselves or conduct ourselves in this new and foreign land? They were wrestling with pressing issues like how we worship now removed from the temple. You see sterling examples like that of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego exhibiting faith even in a land that was not their own. Now, here's my message to you this morning. This land is not our own. And we ought to be wrestling with many of those same issues, coming to terms with the fact that ultimately and finally, our citizenship is in heaven, not here. And that has consequences as to how we regard the world around us. And there are real pressing issues about how we're to carry forth the responsibilities and obligations that come with residing in this place, although temporarily, without the protections and provisions that also might come with real lasting citizenship. This is the focal point of Peter's letter. He writes again to the temporary residents in these areas. In verse 1, he identifies the church as chosen. Chosen, says verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. Virtually any time the language of chosenness or foreknowledge or election or the more stern terminology of predestination is mentioned, there's a long line of people with questions for me as to how these things work systematically or mechanically. I think it's a testament to the hubris of the Western church that we are more fixated on the mechanics of our chosenness than we are stricken with awe at the sheer reality that God has chosen us at all. So for the moment, what I need you to do with this verse is to set aside your interest in building systematic theologies and relish the reality that by faith in Jesus Christ, we have been chosen by God. Because that's Peter's focus. Remember, he's speaking to temporary residents, exiles in a land that is not their own. This is the message. Though you may be outcast in this world, 
Though you may not belong here, you may be strange and altogether different. Though you may be cast aside by this world, you have been chosen by God by faith in Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful observation. Notice further what is said in verse 2. You have been chosen by God the Father according to foreknowledge. You have been sanctified. You are being led by the Spirit, set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work for your salvation. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now in verses 3 through 12, I'll give you the spoiler here. Peter just celebrates the gospel, and, and he directs the people to reflect on what the message of the gospel means to them. Now, when I say gospel, I mean the message of what Jesus has done for our salvation, that Christ lived without sin, that he died as our substitute, that he rose again the third day, and that he beckons that we would repent of our sin and come to him. This is the gospel. And the gospel is powerful to save. And the gospel is powerful to keep us. The gospel is powerful to sanctify us. The gospel is at the very heart of who we are in Christ. Look at verse 3. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's given us a new birth. What, what, is, what is the motivating factor for God in giving us the new birth. His great mercy, right? What compels God to give us the new birth? It's his great grace. What moves the heart of God toward us that we would enjoy this privileged position before him? It is his great mercy. According to his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The gospel provides us with a living hope. Our hope is alive. This, this is more than just sheer optimism. Like I hope it won't rain this afternoon, but there is the expectation that my hopes will soon be dashed. This is hope with confidence, hope with assurance, hope that's rooted in God's favor in the past. God's grace in the past is the guarantee of his grace in the future, he's begotten us into a living hope, giving us this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the resurrection that functions is our assurance in these verses. The fact that God has raised Christ from the dead is the guarantee that he would move heaven and earth to bring to bear our salvation, our sanctification, that he will keep us even until the end. Our hope is alive because Christ is alive. Y'all tracking with me this morning? The resurrection of Jesus Christ functions as our assurance in so many ways. We're able to look back and to reflect on human history and the resurrection of Jesus and find confidence in the gospel. Guarantee of the truthfulness of Jesus' teaching ministry is his resurrection. I often say I'll give as much credence to the teaching of any great teacher as I give to Jesus so long as he too has died and been raised from the dead three days later. Resurrection of Jesus is the yes and amen to the teaching ministry of Jesus. What he says is true and the guarantee of his truthfulness is his resurrection. 
In fact, our assurance in the teaching of the Old Testament is found in the resurrection of Jesus. You know why I'm confident in the truthfulness of the Old Testament? Because Jesus affirmed the teachings of Moses and the prophets, the writing and the law. Jesus affirmed them as true, and Jesus died and rose again, and dead men raised to life get credibility no one else gets. The resurrection is the guarantee, it's the confidence, the assurance of the hope that abides within our heart. Peter speaks here of God saving us from our sin. The language of new birth used here in verse 3 is the same terminology Jesus employs in that famous passage in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus explains to this older rabbi, rabbi who'd come to rebuke Jesus, to straighten out the young teacher. He explains to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Brothers and sisters, you must be born again. God has brought about this new birth through the death and resurrection of his only son, Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, our only hope is a dead Messiah raised to life. Our living hope is a dead Messiah now raised to life. He's begotten us again, given us a new birth, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I, I gave virtually all of the Christmas holiday and the New Year holiday to, to working in and researching in the subject of resurrection. Now, I am more confident today than ever before in my Christian life that the central act of human history, in fact, the focal point of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a subversive doctrine. Like it, it creates in us the ability to persevere even under great oppression. When, when things are happening against us or to us that may seem patently unfair, we're able to press on because of the resurrection of Christ. Do you understand what that's the guarantee of? That this mortal body on the last day, although altogether changed by the removal of sin and all of its consequences, will be raised immortal without corruption, in the presence of a vast army of angels under the kingship of Jesus Christ. That is what the resurrection means for us. Not some vague, obscure, heavenly existence in the abstract, but a very real, eternal life, a bodily, eternal life under the kingship of Jesus. This is the guarantee of the resurrection. Just as Christ was raised, we too shall be raised. This is our living hope. But there's more in verse 4. Not only do we have a living hope, we have the guarantee of a great inheritance. Verse 4 says, we've been begotten again into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. By faith in Jesus, we become heirs with Jesus. That is, we stand to inherit his riches in glory. Now, a lot of you are like me. You know, come from a family background or experience that's given to understanding the ins and outs of inheritance. That's never been one of those things that registered high in terms of priority for me. Never really came to expect much of an inheritance unless I have some 
long-lost relative out there that I don't know something about, inheritance is probably not going to be a major part of the financial planning of the rest of my days, right? But the proverb says that a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. So I've always wanted to position myself such that I was able to do just what the Proverbs describes as a righteous act. Now, I don't advise you to follow after the practices of your pastor in this regard, but I find myself going to check investments and accounts more than one time a day. And I just would have you to know that's just a terrible idea. If you want to have heartburn and anxiety and heartache, you just follow your retirement fund more closely than you ought to, and it is sure to create for you great frustration and anxiety along the way. But I cannot resist. I have to know. I just have to peek periodically. I have to, have to see what's happening there, right? What we're afforded in Jesus is not an investment or an inheritance that has been placed in earthly banks where moth and rust can destroy but one that is unfading, imperishable, one that's kept not here, but in heaven for us. Do you realize all that that entails? That we become heirs of the riches of Christ's great glory by faith in him. Again, what Peter is describing here is that God saves us. And he does. As simplistic as that statement is, I find that often people miss it. God saves us from our sin. God saves us for himself. God takes away our sin. God establishes a place for us in heaven. It is God himself who saves us, not our own devices, our techniques, our wisdom, our intellect, our maturity. We say things like, well, he'll grow up, he'll wise up, he'll mature, he'll figure it out. Or negatively we say, well, he's foolish or behaving foolishly, he's just a kid. Those kinds of transitions in life don't save us from our sin. It's God who changes the heart of man. It's God who turns the heart of man, who brings us from death to life, who gives sight to the blind, who raises us to walk with him in resurrection power. God saves us, Peter says emphatically, and rehearses all that this entails for us. What does it mean to say that God saves us? It means to be sprinkled in the blood of Christ. It means to be sought out by the will of the Father. It means to be sanctified by the work of the Spirit. It means to be begotten again in this new birth, to possess a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He turns his attention to the sustaining power of God in verse number five. He says, you're being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. For some people, their view of salvation goes like this. God saves us in the beginning, and then he just says, go get him, tiger. Or he just sort of winds us up in the moment of our conversion, and he sets us out. And we have to sort of make a go of it and do the best we can with what life remains. But I want you to know that is not the picture of the gospel painted in the New Testament. It is that God saves us by repentance and faith on the first day. The day that you were born again, God opened your heart, granted the gift of faith. And that faith produced in you repentance confidence in the power of the gospel to save you from your sin. And on the day after your salvation, day number two in your journey with Jesus, when you woke up that morning, God worked in your heart 
that on day two you would believe on him, repent of your sin, and persevere in your journey with Jesus. And a month after you came to faith in Jesus, the moment you woke up, God touched the human heart and conditioned you such that you would believe on him and turn away from your sin and walk by the direction of the Spirit. And on the one-year anniversary of your salvation, God woke you up that day and he touched your heart such that you'd believe the promises of the gospel and turn away from your sin and be kept in him. And on the 10-year anniversary of your conversion, God touched the heart and made you such that you would believe on the gospel for salvation and turn away from your sins. It is not that God winds us up in the beginning and sets us forth. It is that he perseveres with us. The very work God is actively involved in at the moment of our conversion, he continues in us even until the very last day. Aren't you glad for that? God saves us and that God sustains us along the way. Peter says you're being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Aren't you glad that God protects us from our foolish decisions, from our wayward hearts, from an unwilling and rebellious flesh, that he protects us oftentimes from the consequences of our own crazy decisions? It's not to say that we don't overpower the leading of the Spirit at times by an unwilling, rebellious spirit. There are moments when we go our way. But even in our unfaithfulness, God is faithful, persevering with his people, protecting us along the way. Peter says God saves us, but it's careful to note here that it's also God who sustains us. I think sometimes we adjust our understanding of how sanctification works because it affords us room for our egos. You know, I used to do things this way, but I've sort of got it together. I'm doing a little better now. It's God who's at work in you for his good pleasure. Every good work, the product of the power of his Holy Spirit abiding in you, it's God who saves and it's God who sustains. Peter goes on in verse six. You may not like what he has to say here. You rejoice in this. Though now for a short time you've had to struggle in various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. My preference is for the older translations of what is said here, specifically in verse number six. Some of you are reading older translations. Let, 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 me, let me read verse six again and interject what I believe to be the preferable phrase there. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time, if need be, you've had to struggle in various trials. In other words, the older translations of verse number six Stress the reality that what Peter is saying is that you need to suffer with some trials and tribulations for the good of your soul and your walk with Jesus Christ. Does that discomfort you? This is not to say that your trials, your struggles, the hardships, the sufferings, the pain, the anguish of life are necessarily good things. In fact, they may be motivated by evil. Joseph would say to his brothers in Genesis 50 and 20, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. God would superintend the evil actions of Joseph's brothers for Joseph's good and for the greater good of all Israel. 
And there may be truly evil, wicked people who do dreadful things to you in this life. But what Peter is saying is that the outcome of those experiences is that God is refining the soul, shaping and molding and making you over into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. So now for a little while, if need be, you've had to face some troubled times, trials and difficulties, hardships. But the outcome of these hardships are to reveal the, the, the nature of your faith, who you are in your innermost. He says in verse 7, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. You, you, you find something out about who you are when faced with hardship. If, if, you, if you go through a, a tragic experience and the spinal spiritual reaction of your heart is to go away from God, that really ought to provide for you a check in your spirit that something is undone. For me personally, and this has made me uneasy in saying this in two services already for fear of how you'll interpret this, so be gracious. But for me personally, a wretched, broken, low-down, dirty dog, that's what I am. One of the surest assurances of my own salvation is that every time the sky falls in my life, the spinal spiritual reaction is to run to Jesus. What I'm saying to you there is that even when I foul it up as, as bad as it could possibly be, when I'm dry and barren and maybe not in tune with the spirit and, and the sky falls, and that's when it falls, right? My heart runs to Jesus. Now, we, we tend to be critical of this, right? Like we observe in someone's experience, maybe their devotional life has not been what it needed to be. Maybe they drifted from the life of the church. Maybe they're not as prayerful as they needed to be. But boom, something happens. And they run to the church and they run to the word of God and they run to the prayer closet in prayer. And I've, I've observed Christian folk wagging the finger and speaking judgmentally about that kind of reaction. They got jailhouse religion, those kinds of statements. To which I would respond, what in the world else are they supposed to do? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. One of the ways that we can find assurance for our soul that indeed we are in Christ is that he's our safe place. He's our refuge when things have gone the wrong way. And a check in the spirit that ought to cause us to examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith is when the sky falls and our heart is prone to wonder, when our flesh is prone to stray. That's a sure sign that someone else is seated on the throne of your heart, not the one you've come to trust confidently as the good and faithful God who always does what is right, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It's, it's become a popular thing, especially in the social media world, which you know may be something that for many of you you're unaware of and if that's you may your tribe increase god bless you but it's it's become a popular thing to talk about ex-christians ex-evangelicals and this whole concept of deconstructing one's faith in other words these are people who once regarded themselves as christians but now see themselves as ex-christians 
I would say first, there are no ex-Christians or former Christians. There are just those who never were Christians in the first place. It is that hardship and trial has revealed, has made manifest who they were at their very heart in the first place. But in most of those testimonies of deconstruction, it's a tragedy that's at its core. Some act of alleged abuse, some turn of unfortunate events, some unjust act on the part of a leader or someone else in the church. And I, I, I in no way want to marginalize or suggest that those aren't significant experiences. It shouldn't be ministered to and addressed with, with sober hearts and minds. Absolutely, absolutely, and absolutely. But you must understand that the trials of life are not making or breaking us. They're just demonstrating who we are in our very heart of hearts. That's what Peter is describing in our passage. I get the make or break nature of certain events in our life. And I, I get that colloquialism. And I get the way we can regard make or break in our life. We're making decisions. Are we going to go in a positive direction? Are we going to go in a bad direction? But those decisions are always going to be the product of who we are in our very heart of hearts. It's going to be the outworking of the work and movement of God's spirit in us that lead us in landing at conclusions at those crossroad pivotal moments in our life. Hardship won't make you who you are. It'll just give an opportunity to give expression to who you are in your very heart of hearts. And in the crisis, listen, in the crisis, if your inclination is not to run to Jesus, it ought to be a check that something is undone. But if you find that your spinal spiritual reaction is to run as fast as you can to the Father's open arms who is waiting for you, find assurance and encouragement that though you may have failed for a season, there is grace and mercy sufficient for you. Peter says God saves and God sustains here in verses 6 and 7, it seems to me that the point of the passage is that God sanctifies. Only he does so through the hardships and challenges experienced in these lives. Hardships made necessary by our need to grow, by our desperate need for further sanctification in the spirit. Now in verses 8 through 12, it's just the gospel. We talked about God saving, about God sustaining about God sanctifying, and now he just focuses on the gospel. Speaking specifically to how it is the gospel creates in us a love for Jesus. Look at verse 8. You love him, though you've not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Can we, can we pause and personalize this verse? Though not seeing him now, do you love Jesus? I mean, do you treasure him in your heart? Do you cherish this great privilege that is ours in knowing him as Lord and as King? Do you love Jesus? Though not seeing him now, do you believe on him? You know, the, the connection between the way our heart is revealed in suffering and, and faith is really this. Faith is about trust. So many times people want to understand all of the ways that God is at work. And there are, there are times when bad things happen and we're able to connect some dots. We can see some ways that God might work to bring some good conclusion to a dreadful scenario. And then there are times when we just can't. And the question that looms over those kinds of scenarios is whether or not you will trust him with this situation. 
So what, what, you, what you really want when you say, I got to know, I got to see the handiwork, is what my kids want when they ask why. My kids would rather agree with me than they would obey me. They want me to tell them why something needs to be done. And there are times when it's appropriate as a dad to explain why. But there are also times when it's appropriate as a dad to say what my daddy always said because I said so. And I'm your daddy. And if you don't, it will not end well for you. The situation is much the same in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. There are times when God in His great grace accommodates our want to understand how the dots connect. But then there are times when we are stretched in our faith. When we cannot see how the dots connect or his hand is at work. And the question that looms over that scenario is whether or not we will trust him even when we can't see his hand at work. Though not seeing him now, do you believe in him? Do you trust him? Some of you are facing some, some real hardships. You've received a diagnosis. Something's at work in your family. You're fearful. You're afraid. Do you trust him? Though not seeing him now. Do you believe in his eternal goodness? You may not understand this side of heaven, the way the dots connect or how his hands at work, but you can trust his heart. He's a good and faithful God who always does what is right. Peter continues in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you though those who preach the gospel, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter's reflecting on our, our privileged position in history. We have, from our historical place, the ability to look back on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to understand how it is that God was at work. It has now come to pass. It's, it's easier to learn by clear observation what we learn in the Gospels than it is to learn by anticipation and subtle indications from the Old Testament. We have a position in history that is preferable to the experiences of those prophets and Old Testament saints who sought to investigate the times and the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow after. It was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but you serving those to come. They prophesied for the well-being, for the benefit of those who would come, who would enjoy this historical perspective. In the days of Peter, those who were nearly contemporary to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but even for us, we're privileged in that we get to look back on what God has done in history and relish the outcomes of salvation wrought for us at the cross and an empty garden grave. It's an amazing position we enjoy, looking back now through history, not at what God would do, not what we hoped God would do, not what was subtly indicated in the Old Testament, but what God has done. We have actual certifiable historical affirmations for our faith in Jesus and his resurrection from the grave. But it's not just information. You know, you run into this thing of people who have the data, right? There are people who know the message of the gospel, but who are not born again by the power of the gospel. Peter says, not only have you experienced these things in real time and in human history, 
These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I hear all the time, and I I say the same thing. At such and such point, I had never heard the gospel until such and such point, and then I was converted and forgiven of my sins, and I came to faith in Jesus. I, I just don't believe that. I think it's true from our perspective, but I don't think that in reality that is the typical Christian experience. I suspect that there have been many times in my life before coming to faith in Jesus when I was at least in the hearing of the gospel. Maybe when faithful people sat me down and spoke of the gospel to me. And I suspect the same has been true in your lives as well, even those of you who might testify to the same, that until X date, I had never heard the gospel. The likelihood is that someone had shared. At some point along the way, you had heard, but you didn't have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to discern the truthfulness of the gospel. The information was present in your life, perhaps at various points along the way, but until that information is attended by the power of God's Holy Spirit, it becomes, it remains rather ineffective for the transformation of the heart. It's not just that historical data has been brought before us, now observers of what's happened in human history. It is that that truth has now landed in our heart by the preaching of the gospel under the anointing and the unction of God's Holy Spirit so that hearing comes by faith and hearing of the word of God attended by the Spirit of God. It's a privileged position we enjoy. And in addition to that, we get the attendance of God's Holy Spirit at the proclamation of the gospel that we might believe. And then to just drive home, to just drive home, what a precious thing it is to know the gospel. Peter says, angels desire to look into these things. You know, the Bible teaches that there was a time before the foundation of the world when Satan grabbed at the glory that belonged to God alone and was cast down from heaven. And every indication is that many other angels joined together in his company were likewise cast down and they found no redemption. There was no place of restoration or forgiveness for those once heavenly bodies. No wonder angels desire to look into the salvation we enjoy as mankind, God's special creation. The favor God has shown us is unique to us as the chosen of God and in that we can rejoice. It feels like it's been forever since I was able to travel outside of the country, and the likelihood is that experience has been the same for you. I thought weeks ago I would have the chance to go and be international on a mission trip, and we even thought we might send a few members of our body in the last week, but uh, coronavirus and uh, Omicron shut all that down all over again. I was thinking back this week, thinking about this passage and thinking about the last trip. The last time I was able to travel was in January of 19, which seems like 100 years ago. We're in South Asia, and and I was preaching a small IMB event in our time there. I'm looking out at some folks that were there and a part of that trip. And and because of the nature of the trip, I had downtime in the evenings for resting and preparing for the next day's preaching and teaching. And so I was in, in my room, a rather nice room for a mission trip, I would add. And watching the news cycle there in South Asia. 
And it was a troubled time. It's troubled times everywhere. We tend to think that our issues here in the States are unique to us, but it's troubled times everywhere. And the news cycle was much like the news cycle here, a cause for fear and great concern at what the next days were going to hold. And everyone was running around and it was kind of chicken little news cycle, you know, that's kind of what we have here. And it was what they were experiencing there. Typically when I see that here, I have to stay away from the news here because it makes me angry. I get all worked in, up into a lather and it's, and I'm not angry so much at, at people as much as I am how dumb some things, Pe people, what is wrong with, what is wrong with people, you know? And, and then my family gets a lecture about what's wrong with people today and all that kind of stuff. It's just not good for me to watch the news a lot, you know? But I noticed on, on that trip, I'm watching the news cycle in, an, in, another, in another nation, on another continent. And I, I really wasn't bothered by that. Matter of fact, I didn't really care. I gave a little thought as to how that might affect our trip or how it might affect future plans to advance the kingdom in that context, given some of the shifts that were happening in culture. But I was in no way troubled by what was unfolding in the chicken little news cycle. You know why? Because that place is not my home. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to understand is that this place is not our home. This place is not our home. And the sooner you're able to reckon with that reality, the lower your blood pressure is going to be, the slower your heart rate is going to be, the less your anxiety will be, and the more gladness of heart you're going to be able to find in your earthly existence until Jesus calls us home. You may be outcast in this life. You may be weird and strange. And listen, the greater the sense of disconnectedness with this world, the stronger the sense of connectedness with that world, the more strange, weird, pilgrim, stranger, and sojourner you're going to appear. But I want you to be reminded, you, as an outcast, an exile, a pilgrim, a sojourner, by faith in Jesus, have been chosen by God. That is ultimately our identity. That is where value is assigned by the Father. And we can rest in that. If you look at what Peter is doing in chapter 1, and I'll show you this, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks. He's saying to pilgrims of Dispersia and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that they, as the chosen of God, exiles in a land that is not their own, if they are to enjoy gladness of heart, if they're going to be effective in advancing the kingdom, in being citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world, they're going to have to be at home with the reality that this is not our home. Relish the gospel. Celebrate day by day by day the power of the gospel that saved them that sustains them, and that sanctifies them. Never get over the gospel. Live with gladness of heart as exiles and strangers. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the message of the gospel that indeed you save, sustain, and sanctify. May Christ receive all the glory for it. It's in his name we pray. Amen.